If you're looking for an investing show that won't be talking about the midterm elections, you're in the right place. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, our man in Colorado, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Tim Byers. Thanks for being here, Tim. Thanks, Chris. Fully caffeinated, ready to go. Likewise. And we're going to need it because Disney added 12 million subscribers to its Disney Plus service in the fourth quarter. Yep. And that appears to be the lone bright spot for the house that Mickey <laughs> built because Disney's fourth quarter profits and revenue were solidly lower than expected. They warned about slowing growth for Disney Plus. And other than the sudden drop in March 2020 that we saw in most, if not all, stocks, shares of Disney are trading at their lowest point since 2014. Where do you want to start? Well, I think we got to start with the subscriber numbers because what I see here, Chris, is that the business, the media, and media distribution business is the drag that it's the anchor that the parks business is lifting. And the reason that parks business did well during during the year and during the quarter is because there's no more COVID-19. People have gone back to parks and that part of the business, Chris, did really well. So I just want to cover that quickly because it is it's I mean it's a that's a great thing. You know, the overall parks experience and products business for the quarter was up 36% on a revenue basis for the year up 73%. Again, not COVID, so this isn't too much of a surprise on the operating income line for the quarter more than doubled and for the year more than doubled. Again, not too surprising, but if we look at the media and entertainment distribution business on the operating income line, Chris, you know, it was profitable operating profit of $83 million in the October quarter. Um, but it was down 42% year over year to 4 billion in terms of operating income. So making money, but not nearly as much as it was making. And I think part of the problem is that the subscriber base isn't growing nearly as fast as Disney wants to see it grow. So for example, Disney Plus domestically, which is kind of the benchmark, that's like let's call it Disney Plus Classic, that was up on a subscriber basis, it was up 20% year over year. Chris, I don't think that's anywhere near good enough. Now on the other side of that, there are some other subscriber numbers. It's fascinating to me. You and I are both sports fans. I love my sports ball. Um, you know, ESPN Plus. ESPN Plus was the bright spot on the subscriber numbers for this for this quarter up 42% year over year. So the average revenue per subscriber not nearly good enough. Disney Plus Classic growth in that domestic part of the market not nearly good enough. A lot of investment is going to be required to transition Disney 
from what it was, profiting very heavily from cable and linear TV, to more of a direct consumer business. The amount of lift here, Chris, I think is much bigger than maybe Wall Street, and most of us thought it would be. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm struck by the fact that we're seeing this reversal where you can go back a year or two and when the pandemic was really at its height and parks were shut down, yep. partially if not entirely, it's, it's the media business, it's the streaming services that's helping to lift the overall company and therefore the stock. And now we're seeing the reversal of that. Uh, let me go to the CEO for a second. Because in sure. February of next year, Bob Chapek is going to hit his three-year anniversary as CEO, yep. and the stock is basically today uh, where it was when he took over. And a higher degree of difficulty for Chapek and all CEOs over the last few years with the no with the pandemic. But I'm I'm thinking ahead to an episode of Motley Fool Money that we're going to do in late December, Tim, where we do our preview for 2023. And yep. long-time listeners know one of the questions we always kick around is, who's the CEO on the hot seat in 2023? And I'm not going to be surprised if one of the analysts puts Bob Chapek's name in, because it kind of seems like if he's not on a hot seat, it's a seat that's certainly getting warmer. Fully agree. And it's a it's a little unfortunate because how much of this is Chapek's fault? Because he's trying to navigate a transition that incorporates a century of history. And so building a a really competitive but also profitable direct consumer business for Disney Media is incredibly difficult. They're in 150 countries right now. But just to give you a sense of how you know the degree of difficulty is it, it's just so different. And I something to consider. So the average revenue per subscriber for Netflix is what? Like you know, it's certainly in the double digits. It's well over ten dollars. Um, I think it's closer to twelve. You know, maybe fourteen. I, I should have been prepared with that number, Chris. Here's what I know: it's way bigger. It's way bigger than the Disney number here. The blended number for global Disney Plus is, as of October first, twenty twenty-two, is three dollars and ninety-one cents, and that was down five percent. Year over year, domestically it's six dollars and ten cents. That's down ten percent year over year. Some of that's due to, you know, price increases, people not choosing to take up, you know, Disney Disney Plus per se. So there, there's some fluctuations there. But it's not just that they have to grow the pie; they have to charge more and they have to get the mix right. If you looked at well, I guess it was, um, you know, the most recent Disney reveal of all the new programming. Disney went hardcore on lots of new programming, particularly on Disney Plus. That's not cheap, Chris. So at some point, Disney has to normalize. Chapek has to figure out how to normalize and get prices higher on Disney Plus, or figure out how to bundle better and get better bundled pricing. Because without that, the bleeding is just going to continue. And, you know, we're going to have a 
a different comparable next year for the parks division. So where's the growth going to come from? It looks like it has to come from price increases plus a larger pool of direct-to-consumer subscribers. So yeah, I do think the seat is warm. I think the job is difficult. And all due respect to Netflix for kind of figuring this out a while ago. And so now the net I- I'm gonna make a-, a bold statement here that you should feel free to disagree with, Chris, but I think the Netflix transition is easier than the Disney transition. How about that? I'm not going to disagree with that, um, in part because Netflix has a simpler business. They're, they're yeah. just doing the one right. thing. They're not dealing with uh, parks. They're not really dealing with merchandise. And you know, if you want to zoom in on the ESPN part of the, or sort of the cost side of the ESPN business, Netflix isn't really dealing with the rising costs of live sports, right? And exactly. and uh, the rights therein. So, um, yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating to watch. Let's. I want to get your thoughts on Redfin real quick before I sure. let you go, yep. because Red Redfin announced they are closing down their home flipping business. They are laying off thirteen percent of their staff. Yeah. If you had asked me what Redfin stock has done over the past year, I would have been directionally correct, but I would not have guessed that the stock is down 93% over the past 12 months. This is now a $350 million market cap business. Where does Redfin go from here? I mean, it's so hard, Chris. I, I love this business. I love the CEO, Glenn Kelman. And if you look at what, so he wrote in a blog post, they're going to report earnings, uh, I believe, a little bit later today as we tape this on November 9th. Um, he wrote, a layoff is awful. We can't avoid it. We plan to keep increasing our share of the market, but that market in 2023 is, and he said this, I'm, so I'm quoting here, is likely to be 30% smaller than it was in 2021. Where does Redfin go from here? It's a bit of batting down the hatches time here, Chris. Ride it out. Like, ride it out the way they rode it out in 2008. So, they've been in really tough positions before, and Kelman's been through those tough positions. I think it's the right move to get rid of the eye buying business because it's capital intensive and the return is uncertain. And the good news. For Redfin shareholders like me, um, not that there's much good news here, but th- that part of the business, iBuying, was always a very small part of the business and it was always experimental and they were always really careful with it. They always said, like, we could turn off this spigot at any time. We don't believe this is something we should go all in on. So by turning that off, they do make their business a little bit more capital friendly. So the turnaround possibly comes a little faster when the market turns. But I think it's full on batting down the hatches time, Chris. It's heartbreaking. I hate it. I plan to hold the stock because I believe in Kelman and I believe in Redfin and just its business of nationalizing real estate brokerage using technology. I think that's the right move, but it's going to be tough for a while, man. Is this a business that can survive another year or so if the housing market basically just stays where it is right now? I mean, there's activity has dropped yeah. off considerably. You see it 
even in things like you know the number of people looking to refinance their mortgage, like that number has just dropped off a cliff. And yeah. so I'm wondering how well capitalized is Redfin. Well, I mean, it's a really good question, and again, we're going to find out more when they report earnings. But if I just have to give you, you know, just a, a straight shot here, bear in mind that these numbers include the uh, the eye buying for the moment. But on the balance sheet, as of the the end of June, so as of the end of June, in terms of of net cash, you know, available on the balance sheet. Um, there, there isn't a lot, um, unfortunately. You know, the net debt is, um, is is higher because of the investment in houses. They're about 1.3 billion dollars in debt, so they're gonna have to unwind that. Their cash position was about 473 million dollars as of June. So. Take a look at the quarter. Let's see what the cash burn was. But I do think there is a path forward as they unwind the inventory of of homes. And honestly, they're not going to be looking to make profits off of these homes. They're just going to look to liquidate, get as much cash as they can on the balance sheet, and ride this out. For the moment, I think they're okay. But it's it's a bit of a wait and see for for those who are thinking about this is like hey maybe this is a deep value play i'd say not yet like not yet let's take a look and see just exactly how healthy this business is and what they have to say about their plans to ride this out tim byers always great talking to you thanks for being here thanks chris In 1978, Bernie Marcus co-founded the Home Depot, and all these years later, he is still bullish on the company. Deidre Woolard caught up with Marcus to talk about the Home Depot's early days and other thoughts from his new book, Kick Up Some Dust, Lessons on Thinking Big, Giving Back, and Doing It Yourself. I want to talk about founding of Home Depot because you're at this pivot point in your life. You're about 49 or 50. It, it kind of starts with a humiliation. So, how did you turn what what could have been just this career crushing moment into into this amazing business? When you look at it, it was about the worst thing that could have ever happened to me in my life. I'd always been successful. Uh, we ran this business, Handy Dan which was a good business. We started with a few stores. We built it into a big chain, a very popular chain, one that was very, very successful. But I didn't get along with the people who were owned the stock of the company. Uh, Dalen owned 81% of the stock of the company. And the head of Dalen basically hated me. He was the antithesis of who I am. He's a raider, a guy who took over bankrupt companies, a guy who loved to let people go. Uh, I'm more of a builder and a creator and a marketing guy and an advertising and promotion guy. And we didn't see eye to eye at anything. But I must tell you, it was a shock walking into a room one day full of lawyers and finding out that you've been thrown out on your It didn't really work well. It's the first time in my life I'd ever been fired. And uh, 
I didn't react well to it. Uh, it was a setback. I couldn't, why did this happen? You know, how did it happen? And I'm sure this happens to a lot of people in their life. They have that setback. And some people come out stronger and some people never recover. And the ones who don't, don't recover are ones that carry a burden all their lives and, and have the blame thing. You know, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. And, you know, why did this happen to me? And, oh, my God, look what you did to me. I had to assume that some of the responsibility was mine. Or maybe I was arrogant. I don't know. Maybe I thought too much myself. Um, but I didn't communicate well with the powers to be. And I certainly didn't like to suck up. That was one of my big problems, uh, sucking up. And uh, along came Ken Langone. And Ken Langone, as you know, of the Langone Center, is a great friend of mine. He's like a brother. Ken had invested in our company, Handy Dan. He flew out to California. And he called me on the phone one day and said, buy every blankety, 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 blankety share of stock you can in your own company because I'm buying all of the outstanding shares. Well, I thought the guy was a nutcase. I said, well, I can meet you next week. He said, no, tomorrow morning. And uh, I said, where are you? He said, New York. He's up flying out. I'll see you tomorrow morning. And he, he didn't say, uh, poor Bernie, and why did this happen to you? He said, you've been hitting the with a golden horseshoe. Now is the time to open the store that you told me about. Because on one of our trips, Kenny and I, in Houston, in fact, he was asking why I, we were opening so many stores. And I said, because someday somebody's going to come in here and just wipe this industry out and take it over. And he said, well, how? And I said, if I tell you, you'll be the second one to know, but I'm not telling anybody. That's something that's in my own mind. And we let it go. But Kenny brought it up and said, you remember that store you talked to me about? Let's open it. Let's do that store. And uh, Kenny is the one that gave me the, uh, the emotional push to do it, along with uh, uh, Arthur and Ron Brill. And um, we did it. We sat down. We figured it out. Um, we put it on paper. We did projections. The projections didn't work. Uh, Arthur, who is the accountant and the financial guy, looked at the numbers and said, the numbers don't crunch. We can't make money selling product for the price you want to sell it for with the overhead that you're talking about. And, and so it doesn't work. And I said, well, what do you have to do? And he said, well, it just needs more volume. I said, good, put in more volume. He said, I just can't do that. I said, why not? I said, do you know anything about this? How much these stores are going to do? You have a clue? He said, no, I don't. I said, well, I have a feeling it's going to do a hell of a lot more than you think they are. And just put the damn volume in. And, and we had this meeting in New York. And Arthur, I thought, was very unhappy. He was going in with numbers that he didn't really believe in. I did. He didn't believe in it. And uh, we presented it to the board. 
They came up with $2 million to finance this adventure that we went into. Then we found out that we didn't have enough money because in order to do it, we needed a hell of a lot more than $2 million. So it, it set us on the journey. But the journey started with actually with Ken Langone kind of giving us the push to shove. And then Arthur and I took it over from there. I love that story so much. I, I love your confidence in that moment when Arthur's giving you those numbers and you just have to say, no, we're going to increase the volume. What gave you the confidence to, to do that? And what do you think was the, the secret sauce, the thing that you mentioned earlier that you saw something that other stores weren't doing that you think you could do? What exactly was that? It was, it was, all, it was all conceptual. And uh, I said, look, if people have an ability to buy a product in a store that they previously couldn't buy in that one store. So the thing was to have everything under one roof, everything, so that people didn't have to go to five different stores. You know, if you're a contractor and you're a plumbing contractor, you need different tools, you need different uh, products to finish the product, Imagine the time it took for contractors going from store to store, paint store, carpentry store, hardware store, to put it all together. My concept was put it all under one roof. And put it all under one roof, but buy direct from the manufacturers. Don't buy from middlemen. Therefore, you save the money of the middlemen and you give it back to the customer in lower prices. And then on top of that, you have people on the floor who are plumbers, painters, carpenters, hardware people that understand tools. And all of those together give you a winning, a winning thing that nobody had ever done before. So nobody ever did it before. So how do you know how much volume you're going to do? With me, I said, I think it's, it'll be enormous. I think the stores will be overflowing with people. I think they'll be, they'll love what they have because people love a, love a bargain, but not just a bargain, but I mean, on quality kind of merchandise. And uh, it worked out that way. And we were very, very lucky. We found four stores to start with. And those four stores uh, became the basis of really the Home Depot. But Deidre, one of the things that, that I like to bring up at this point is that this is, this is where capitalism comes in. If it hadn't been for capitalism, these young, you're talking about Arthur, myself, Ron Brill, Pat Farrer, we couldn't have gone anywhere or done anything uh, without the money. You just don't have the money. And the banks, would not let us the money. The banks didn't know who we were, didn't care. Home Depot, what are you kidding? Well, what is that? What is that? It's like a, a train station somewhere. So we went to the market, we sold stock. The stock allowed us to buy four more stores. The, the business built up, built up and built up, and four more stores became available. We went to the market and we, we again sold shares, brought shareholders in, and capitalism won out. And capitalism is the basis of Home Depot. It's one of the great stories of capitalism in the United States. 
And if you think about the value of what's come out of, out of Home Depot, the value of the stock over the years with its great um, history of earnings and, and sales and profitability and innovation over the years, how many people have become millionaires in Home Depot? People, especially that worked on the floor of the stores, who only had college, high school educations. These people didn't go to Harvard. They didn't go to Yale, but they made, they made a hell of a lot more than the Harvard graduates, I'll tell you that much. They were successful because they worked their butts off because they had a piece of the company. They knew they were working for themselves as well. Okay. Well, you did mention something in there that I want to what, what, um, zero in on, which is the idea of how important the associates were for, uh, for the business itself. So, when you think about your employee training program, why was that such an important part of it? I think you touched on this a little bit earlier with this idea that when you were 11, you learned how to do things in a store and that you could do it yourself. How did you sort of pass that message on to your employees? Well, it wasn't it was, it was, it was an innate feeling about customer relationships. You know, when you go into a store and you, you stop at a cashier and she'll say, how are you? And you say, fine. And she says, okay. And she bags it up. Okay. I am once in California. I just did it. A woman was begging my stuff. She says, how are you doing? I said, I'm terrible. I have such pains in my back and my legs and my, and my things. And she said, oh, have a nice day. Boom. At a Home Depot, that's not what happens. They would stop you and say, what's wrong? What is happening? They care about you. They care about the customers. And because they care about the customers, the customers know that they're going to get a product that they need to help them do whatever project they're working on. So it's a, it's, it's, it's one of these things you teach them to treat people differently. Uh, I remember when we opened in New York, you know, we had this great opening in New York, open stores in New York, yeah, New York, you know, uh, yeah, what do you want here? Yeah. You get know, New York, tough people. Um, you may be in New York. I'm not sure, but I come from the, I come, I come from the, Northeast, so I could tell you that. I had a call from one guy said, what cult are you working with to find your employees? I said, what do you mean cult? He said, your people are not normal people. They, they probably come from a cult, some religious cult. I said, yeah, they come from the Home Depot cult. It's a Home Depot cult. It's a, it's a culture that we have at Home Depot that I will tell you, I've been out of the Home Depot now for 20 some odd years. It's still alive and breathing and doing the same thing. Our people care about a customer. They care what they were. They know that when a customer comes in the store, they have a problem. They don't come through to drink Coke, you know, and, and, and eat, a, eat a Whopper. They, they come through because they have an issue. They have a plumbing problem, an electrical problem, they have a carpentry problem, and we have people there that could help them solve those problems. And that's the role of Home Depot uh, in everybody's life. And that's why the company keeps getting stronger and better 
even in these terrible, ridiculous times that we're living in, Home Depot is still number one out there and will continue to be number one. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.